Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back of the notes. And we'll begin our third and final week studying this most familiar passage of what is commonly called the rich young ruler, or as Luke simply identifies him, the rich ruler. And we've emphasized in the, in the previous weeks Jesus' method of evangelism with this man. Uh, the passage, verses 18 through 30, are capped with the same phrase. The, verse 18, the man comes, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in verse 30, Jesus comes back to that topic, in the age to come, eternal life. That sort of brackets or bookends this text. It's a chunk. And so I'd like to begin by reading this text, and then diving in a third and final time into it to see what the Lord has for us. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth. To enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. Lord God, we desire to inherit eternal life. We don't want to perish. We want to live, and we want to live with you in your presence, beholding your glory. And so, Lord, as we listen to your son. Tell us how we might inherit eternal life. Lord, I pray that we would listen attentively, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that what is impossible with man would become possible and effectual through your power. Give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. And so this morning, we will look at the present and future reward of following Christ. I'd like to begin just by quickly reviewing the, the narrative. It began with the rich ruler's question about eternal life. This is the second time in Luke's gospel where he's received this question, first by the lawyer in chapter 10 who was desiring to test him, and now this young man. And Luke told us that the lawyer in chapter 10 was trying to test Jesus, but everything about this encounter suggests this man is entirely sincere, most notably his sorrow. 
He's asking a real question, and we noted that it's the most important question you can ask. According to the Bible, you and I will never not be. We are one-way eternal beings. We have a beginning, but we will have no end. We will continue to exist. And this man is concerned with where he will exist after death. And considering the brevity of life, it's a vapor, it's a wind, what could be more important? It's also, hopefully, comes to the right source. He comes to the Son of God on earth. He addresses him respectfully. He's got the right question, the right person to ask it to. And we noted how Jesus' response challenges maybe some of our notions of evangelism. And I suggested before, I'll suggest again, that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism in the New Testament. Jesus' treatment of the woman at the well, the woman who washed his hair with her feet, Paul and Silas's treatment of the Philippian jailer, they all differ. What we see is that really the gospelizing, evangelizing, is a matter of speaking to the person you're dealing with. And Jesus sizes this man up, and he brings him to the law, and he challenges his understanding of God's righteousness and who Jesus is. This is all in keeping with the theme that ended Jesus' parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in verses 9 through 14, which ends with, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then Luke, not accidentally, has the most humble people possible, babies, the least social standing, even Jesus' disciples who are already beginning to get Jesus' ethic and the upside-down kingdom, even they kept them away thinking they were too insignificant. And Jesus says, no, these are perfect examples of dependence and humility and meekness and childlike faith that is typified of those who enter my kingdom. And he draws them near. And then we have this rich young ruler who is the, the, the model of everything valued in that culture. They would have understood this man to be blessed by God. Abraham was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. And then under the Mosaic Covenant, faithfulness on Israel's part would guarantee economic, political prosperity. And this man is, is known in the community. He's wealthy. He's moral. And yet Jesus recognizes his lack, brings him to the law, brings him to challenge his understanding of who is good and what is good. And so he responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. So Jesus then goes to what we refer to as the second table of the law, the last six commandments that deal primarily horizontally with one's neighbor. And he goes through commandments five through nine, at which the rich young ruler said in verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now that's patently false, but we've learned that the Pharisees, and as the Pharisees influenced the culture, had found ways to interpret God's law such that you could keep their version of it. And again, I think this man's response is sincere. He says it publicly in front of other people, not expecting any contradiction by the crowd. This was, in many respects, a very ethical, moral man. No doubt it took effort and work. But God's law does not humble him. 
That was the principle we saw to try to explain. The Philippian jailer asked in their identical question to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved here? What must I do to have eternal life? And Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus takes them to the Ten Commandments. And the principle is this, that I think consistently in the Bible, law is preached to the proud and grace to the humble. Law is preached to the proud and grace to the humble. God's law, which makes up the first three quarters of your Bible, is meant to reveal our sinfulness, God's righteousness, his standard. And I think this is no more necessary than our culture today where people think we're generally good people and most people I meet think if you're generally good and try hard, you'll be okay. That is far too low an understanding of what God requires and his holiness. And so today as well is a good day to point people to who God is and what he requires Remember, the picture that Jesus gave of the man who was justified is not the Pharisee. who Thanks God. In verse 11 of this chapter, the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. He's moral, he's religious, and he's thanking God for that. We live in a culture of many moral Religious people who will thank God for that. The picture that Jesus puts forward, the man who is justified, is the tax collector. Standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. This young man thinks he's kept the law. And so then Jesus gives him his challenge in verse 22. He doesn't, he doesn't directly challenge his claim. Not that Jesus accepts it, but he does, that's not his, his direction of, of attack. Rather, he says this, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now we're getting at the tenth commandment about coveting. And so what this ruler is faced with is a dilemma of what is more valuable to him? Eternal life, the Son of God, that's one sense side of the scales, and the other is all of the pleasure and security and safety and things that money can buy. What would he value more? And we know what he valued because of his sorrow. In verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And the, the tragedy here is this man wants eternal life. He's, he's, he's afraid he's going to perish. He, he knows he doesn't meet God's standard. He's, he recognizes that even though he largely kept the law, he knows that's not enough, and yet he values and clings to the things of this world over eternal life. And Jesus does something remarkable. He sees that he's sad, and, and in front of him, as best as I can tell, he begins to lament over him. And we began looking at this last week. It's where we'll pick up now. Jesus said three things. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying here is, is pretty simple. Entry into the kingdom of God is impossible for the rich. It's impossible. Please don't think that this camel needle illustration is meant to show great difficulty if you've ever seen a camel you've ever seen a needle the, the, the logic's pretty straightforward there is no camel or needle gate in in jerusalem that's that's an old preaching myth the picture is one of impossibility 
And Jesus is, is operating again, like I said, in a, in a climate where this man wouldn't be viewed suspiciously. We live today where if you're a one percenter, much of the culture assumes you've gotten that through avarice, greed, and, and injustice. This is a moral, righteous, in the community's view, man, blessed by God. This is the best they've got. And we see that in the response that comes, who can be saved? They're stunned. They're not saying, well, yeah, of course the rich can't be saved because they're terrible. No, Jesus is taking the best person they've got and saying it's easier for camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into heaven. He's already pronounced woes upon the rich. You see, one of the dangers of this world is the, the goods of this world, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the lust of the flesh. They promise things, and in some degree they can deliver. Money can buy you things. Money can make you comfortable. Money can can give you protection and shelter, and in many respects, it can be a savior for you, temporally. And we, we live in the wealthiest nation in the world at the wealthiest time in the history of the world. Well, compared to most people on the planet Earth, we are all rich. If you have any leisure time, this is a foreign concept in many places, and certainly in history past. This is bad news for us. And Jesus said in Luke 6, 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. It's impossible. That's the point. The people pick up on this. They respond, then who can be saved? Which is to say, in that case, Jesus, how can anyone be saved? They, they get it. They get what he's saying. And Jesus' answer is, is striking and amazing. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So Jesus, again, recognizes this is impossible. If, if you're wondering, how is it that a human heart can come to treasure, value, delight in, and trust Jesus more than the pleasures of this world, the things of this world, the money of this world? How, how can that happen? The answer is it can't. I think one of the reasons why modern evangelism differs so much from Jesus' evangelism is we want to make the gospel something people can do, which is a good motive in one sense. But understand, Jesus is saying here, turning to him in faith from all the things of this world is something that is not humanly possible. Point C, God alone makes salvation possible. Only God can change a human heart. Only God can grant this type of faith. If you, if you turn back all the way to Luke chapter 4, I want, I want to show you this is consistent with Jesus' teaching, right? Remember, he, he goes to his home synagogue after returning from the wilderness, now filled with the Holy Spirit. And he shows up on a Sabbath. He stood up, verse 16, to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus says is this, I've come to save those who are slaves, blind, lost, helpless. 
And when Jesus' hometown recognized he was talking to them, they became furious and tried to throw him off the hill. Jesus is a savior, but he's a savior for the helpless. Jesus is a savior for those who are trapped, who are blind, who are poor. The problem with this rich ruler, he he thinks he's something. He thinks he's accomplished something. He thinks he has something. Only God can give that broken spirit and a contrite heart that we sing of from Psalm 51 that God will not despise. In fact, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. And and this is the thing we want to avoid doing in our evangelism. We we want to avoid dumbing down the gospel and Jesus' demands to something that carnal, unregenerate man apart from the Spirit can do. Salvation is a work of God. Salvation is a work of God. Let me give you the Apostle Paul's description of how salvation happens. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled... The picture is now a veil blinding someone. He's been using that metaphor since the middle of chapter 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why do people perish? They don't see anything majestic, glorious, and beautiful when they see the gospel of Christ. That's what this rich man's doing. Jesus is standing right in front of him. And it's not that Jesus doesn't have glory. It's this man is blinded to it. Money looks better to him than Jesus. That's the problem. So you you present the gospel, and people are blind. And people are deaf. How does that get fixed? It's not through playing one more round of just as I am. It's not through anything you and I can do. How does this get fixed? Verse 6 tells us the answer. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, which is reaching all the way back to Genesis 1, where God by himself, for himself, spoke the universe into being. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the only way a human heart comes to treasure Christ more than stuff and money, more than relationships, more than the pleasures of this world. And it can't be fabricated or faked on our part. That's the work of God that needs to be done. That's what Jesus is saying. With man, this is impossible. To put it really simply, the gospel is impossible to believe savingly apart from God's work. And we don't need to be ashamed of that. And we certainly don't need to give it a makeover. Present it as clearly, as simply, as straightforwardly as we can. We appeal to people. We plead with them to be reconciled with God. And we pray and hope that God works. And if you have more questions on that, you can go back to our series on election predestination from last spring where we dealt with that topic in depth. But this is more teaching of the same. Jesus told his disciples, um, blessed are your eyes that they see and your ears that they hear. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Why could the disciples understand Jesus' teaching and others didn't? It was given to them. It was given to them. Okay. So now Jesus turns from lamenting over the ruler to blessing the disciples. And Peter speaks up, and as is his um, custom, he would speak for the entire group. 
And this is one of those times where he gets it right. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't say, get behind me, Satan. Jesus encourages him. Peter said, verse 28, See, we have left our homes and followed you. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. So Peter points out that the disciples have left all to follow Jesus. And this isn't metaphor or hyperbole. This is literally true. Turn back to chapter 5. You can see Peter's own call where Jesus, after preaching a sermon by the lake, gets on his boat, tells him to cast his net over to the other side. Peter falls down on his face and worships him, says, depart from me, Lord, from a sinful man. And then verse 11, chapter 5, when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. There's no hyperbole here. Peter's speaking the literal truth. He's not bragging. He's, Jesus has just said this can only happen because of God's work, and Jesus is saying, but, but it can't happen because we've done it. Or a little later, Jesus calls Levi, a, a tax collector. Verse 27 of chapter 5. After this, he went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So it's impossible with man, but apparently it is possible. God is working in Luke's gospel already. And Peter excitedly points that out. They have truly left their livelihoods and families. Now in this sense, it's kind of unique. Jesus is calling on them to follow him. He's got about a three, three and a half year ministry before the crucifixion. And these men have left their jobs. They left their homes. Um, we, we've already met Peter's mother-in-law, Capernaum. And they're on the road with Jesus. And so they have literally have left all those things. Now after the resurrection, they are not continuing. P Peter doesn't abandon his wife and family. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which is Peter. So Peter was doing his ministry with his wife and presumably his family, assuming he had a family. But this three-year period is unique that they really are leaving everything and following Christ. There's nothing hyperbolic here at all. It's a literal truth. But we're to understand by the way, Luke has presented this, point two, that this is only because of God's work in them. This is only because of God's work in them. How are we to understand this? Are Peter and the disciples better than the rich ruler? Are they smarter than the rich ruler? He's a fool, they're wise, or maybe they're less corrupt and wicked. He loves money and the things of this world more than them. Good on them. No. The way that salvation only gives glory to God is when God is its author. This is the work of God. And Jesus has said as much in this gospel. In ver chapter 10, verse 21 to 23, when the 70 returned, we read, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You must become like a child. And he's referring to the 70. Little children. Not because they have childish faith, but childlike faith. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He thanks God for hiding truth from people, and he thanks God for revealing truth to people and Jesus clearly views salvation ultimately as the work of God. 
and human hearts. And then Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus promises rewards now and in the age to come. Back in chapter 18, this is good news. If you're a follower of Christ, say this is, this is good news. Let's, let's read what he says. Truly I say to you, there is no one. That means that includes us. This is not a promise just limited to the, the 70 or the disciples in Jesus' day. This is, this is true of you and me as well. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what is Jesus promising? I want you to notice there's, there's two promises. There's a now promise, this time promise, and an age to come promise. And I want to look at those one at a time. First, now. What Jesus promises is this. The repayment... I struggle with the word here, replenishment. didn't want to say replacement. Some reword. Um, we'll stick with repayment. Of relationships. Repayment of relationships. Jesus has already said on multiple occasions that faithfulness to the kingdom of God may cost you your earthly relationships. In chapter 12, he said this, and this is not a verse that you generally see quilted on a wall. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus plainly says that because of him and his coming, households will be set in conflict with one another. Even more clearly still in chapter 14, 25 to 26, great crowds accompanied him. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These again are not things you hear in modern evangelism. But Jesus didn't bait and switch, and he made it clear that we're saved by faith. We're not saved by doing things. But the faith and commitment Jesus is looking for is total. It's total. And, and make no mistake, your loyalty and fidelity to Jesus will at times create friction and possibly even break your relationships with your family, your relationships in the world. I see it happen as a pastor. I know if the family split by the gospel, I know of real husbands and real wives set against each other in conflict because one is believing the truth and one is not. I know of parents um, separated from their children who are no longer on speaking terms. I know of children who, who've been alienated from their parents. All these things that Jesus says, I've seen. And, it's, and if you haven't, well, I just encourage you to look harder. Or think of, to make it even plain, how in Muslim countries, when a Muslim comes to faith and professes their faith in Jesus, what happens? They immediately lose their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their entire community. They run the risk of honor killings. Again, this is not hyperbole. And it's not that Jesus is calling men and women to leave their families. You read the rest of the New Testament, that's abundantly clear that is not the case. The assumption is that faithfulness to God will at times put those things in risk. And I appreciate the fact that Jesus up front tells people this. 
Because some of the hardest decisions I've seen people face is when they realize that being faithful to Jesus, being faithful to God's word, may end that relationship with their child who's in rebellion. It may create more conflict in the home. And Jesus says clearly, he recognizes that's a possibility and he expects his disciples will be faithful. But there's good news. That's the bad news. There's good news. Jesus promises that those relationships that you've lost, if you're sitting here today and you, you've got estrangement in your family, Jesus has a good word for you. In this time, he promises a repayment of those relationships that is abundant, who will not receive, he says, many times more in this time. So, so how does that work? How do you receive many times more parents, children, brothers, wives, how can Jesus make this promise? Because And you notice he introduced it, truly I say to you, this is a solemn promise of our Lord, to anyone who for the sake of the kingdom of God, this isn't a promise if you've just been a jerk, but if for the sake of the kingdom of God, your relationships and your family have been compromised, broken, estranged, Jesus promises that you will receive many times more in this time. How, how does that work? I think we've already got a hint of this back in Luke chapter 8. Turn back to Luke chapter 8. Now, it's going to take the Apostle Paul and 1 Timothy to make it really clear. But I think we got a hint of this in Luke. 19. Then his mother, this is Jesus' mother and brother, came to him. They could not reach him because of the crowds. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is recognizing a familial family relationship that exists among those who hear his words and keep it. He, at least here, sees trumping physical familial relationships. That's remarkable. And if you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, this becomes spelled out even more clearly. This helps, I think, again, tie this passage together. Remember, what do you have to become like to enter the kingdom of God? A child. You've got to enter into God's family as his child. You've got to be willing to ask for your daily bread. The rich young ruler wants to have his daily bread stored up in a silo for many years to come. And Paul wrote to Timothy to set the church in order at Ephesus. And he gives us kind of a key theme. In fact, this is kind of a key verse for 1 Timothy. What it's about, what its purpose in writing is. It's found in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, 1 Timothy 3, 14, but I am writing these things to you now so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church, and here's your blank, Christ's church is the household of God, the family of God. And that then informs, if you turn to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul's instruction a little later in the letter. I mean chapter 5, sorry. Notice how he tells Timothy to interact with the church at Ephesus. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You see, in the church, we become God's family, and by virtue of becoming God's family, we become the family of each other. 
And so I'm to interact with the older men as fathers, the older women as mothers. This is how you can get multiple fathers and mothers and wives and sons and daughters. And this is the primary way Christ fulfills this promise. You see, the Lord has not left us alone on earth. He's given us his spirit. And he's given us his word. But he's also given us each other. This is good news. And I see this play out in our body. Our body is a healthy body. And I see the relationships. I see the, the children who, because of their faith in Christ, are on different pages with their parents, getting parents in this body. If, if, I see the, the older men and women getting sons and daughters. This isn't what we did earlier today. This church saying, yes, we will care for these children as our own as well. We will train them up. We will encourage. We will help. We take that responsibility. And so the good news for you is if your faith has cost you relationships in the church, in God's family, he intends for you to receive many times more of those relationships. This is another reason why the church is so vitally important. Commitment to the church, a local church, is so crucial because this is where all that happens. This is where all that happens. In 1 Corinthians 12, ideally, this is how a church should be working. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And we just, we just got together recently as a family to celebrate and mourn the loss of three of our own just in the last four weeks, didn't we? And we, I saw the church family at work comforting, encouraging, strengthening, if, if you're lonely and alone, if you feel isolated, if you feel that your faith has, has severed you from those, I, I pour yourself into the church. Find brothers, find sisters, find mothers, find fathers, find sons and daughters here. That's God's intent. It's his promise. It's his joy. He doesn't mean for you to go through life alone. And in his church, that is the primary place you will find them. So that's the now repayment. Hinted at in Luke as Jesus identifies those who hear and keep God's word as his true family, and then made more clear in the epistles. And then we finally come full circle to the worthy rich young ruler asked his question, in the age to come, eternal life. You see, the disciples, we are told, have that which the rich ruler sought. How did this whole narrative begin? The question, I want eternal life. What do I have to do to have eternal life? And here Jesus announces who has eternal life. It's those who have chosen to follow him above all else. It's those who have counted the cost and turned to him away from everything else. It's those who have adopted a childlike and dependent faith, not trusting in money and possessions to protect them, not clinging to the things of this world, but recognizing that these things of this world don't save. They have no power, no righteousness in themselves. They beat their breasts like the tax collector, and they say, be merciful to me, a sinner. And again, as far as I can tell from Luke, Jesus makes this pronouncement in the presence of the rich ruler. The rich ruler asked his question. Jesus gave him his demand. He was unwilling to pay it. And in front of him, he turns to these disciples who have forsaken everything to follow Christ, and he tells them, the age to come, you have eternal life. So again, it's another kindness. But, that, but that's the answer. If you want eternal life, humble yourself like a child. Be willing to adopt a dependency upon God, an obedience that's childlike. Or do you think you know better than God? 
and look to him and cry out to him above all else. And you will have eternal life in the age to come. This is the fulfillment, finally, in point two, of what we saw in verse 14, that all who humble themselves will be exalted. All who humble themselves will be exalted. Salvation costs nothing. You don't bring anything to the table. But by equal truth, it costs everything because you can't bring anything to the table. I like the, the analogy of the, the military. Joining the Marines is free. doesn't cost you anything, does it? In another sense, joining the Marines is very costly, isn't it? It's similar to this. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by doing things. But the faith that Jesus is calling for is not a mental ascent. The rich ruler had a mental ascent. Remember last week we noticed that his sorrow evidences that he accepts Jesus and his teaching is true. He thinks what Jesus says is right. He doesn't mock and scoff. He becomes sorrowful. He thinks what Jesus has said is accurate. But it's, it's a matter of what you really are trusting. At the end of the day, what was he trusting in? I'm going to trust in my money. I'm going to trust in the things of this world. See, you can have eternal life and you can have a family more abundant and full than the family you have now. But you too need to follow Jesus. Be willing to fall, beat your breast. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I've said before, there's no one too poor, too broken, too sinful, too corrupt that they cannot be saved. There are far too many who are too proud, too strong, too wise, too great, too good, to be saved. Jesus came to save those who are blind, oppressed, poor. The good news is, if, if, if that's who you are, it's the work of God in your heart. And if that's not who you are, cry out that God would do this work in your heart. You, you can't do this on your own. But it is the good pleasure of our God and Savior to take hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. It is the good pleasure of our God and Savior to humble and grant repentance and faith. The answer to the question is, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? You've got to become a follower of Jesus. You've got to trust in him. And you've got to trust in him in the way that you were trusting in this world and its money. Um, the rich ruler has his answer. The disciples have their reward. We have our instruction. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we cannot make ourselves love what we do not love. We cannot make ourselves believe what we do not believe. We cannot, cannot grieve sin that we do not see as offensive. And so, Lord, we pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would open our eyes to behold your glory, your righteousness, and in contrast, our sinfulness, our frailty, our finitude, our weakness, that you would help us to see the glories of knowing Christ and his gospel and your forgiveness and the promise of eternal life far outweigh the things of this world that are but dust and are passing away. Give us the faith that we might turn from them to you. We might become your sons and daughters, part of your family, part of your household. Lord God, that is why you sent your son to earth, to seek and save the lost. I pray that you would do that here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. 
give you peace. God bless.